Today we are reading from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, 1 to 16. So open up your devices or your Bibles. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. You know, brothers and sisters, that our visit to you was not without results. We had previously suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know, but with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in the face of strong opposition. For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We are not trying to please people but God, who tests our heart. You know we never use flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We were not looking for praise from people, not for from you or anyone else. Even though as apostles of Christ you could have asserted we could have asserted our authority. Instead we were like young children among you. Just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only in the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and hardship. We worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preached the gospel of God to you. You are our witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous and blameless we were among you who believed. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. And we also thank God continually because when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as a human word but as it actually is, the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own people the same things those churches suffered from the Jews, who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and also drove us out. They displease God and are hostile to everyone in their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. In this way, they also heap up on their sins to the limit. The wrath of God has come upon them at last. Continuing in 1 Thessalonians, I've called our sermon series for the next five weeks, The Gospel Family. By way of uh, summary, the first three chapters in Thessalonians, uh, we talked about this last week, is an encouragement celebration of the faith of this church. And then chapters 4 and 5, Paul and his team that write the letter encourages them to keep on growing because, you know, Jesus really is worth it. And last week in chapter 1, as we opened this book, we saw that a gospel family celebrates what Jesus is doing in others. We should celebrate as the people of God, the winds along the way, that we see Jesus doing in one another's life. And today, as Meredith has helpfully pointed out, and we heard from our Bible reading, chapter 2 in the first 16 verses is the idea that gospel families are authentic. A gospel family is authentic. And that means we're a faultless, authentic Christian, even in a hostile world. 
So I've called today's talk Authentic Christianity. When I say, uh, say that, I don't mean perfect Christianity. Authentic Christians, rightly motivated, genuine in what we do. We see that in the first six verses, uh, if we break that down, the faultless motives of Paul, verse 1 to 6. We see his authenticity in verse 7 to 12. And we see that he lived that way in verse 13 to 16 in a hostile world. Faultless, authentic, in a hostile world. As we begin, I wonder this morning, what motivates you? What motivates you? Well, I'm sure, and pick, pick a part of your life and you could tell me why you are motivated or not motivated in that area. But what, what are some things that motivate you? Think about myself, I love running. Um, and what motivates me is lots of things, lots of, I can pray. I like the feeling of running fast and long. I like to hear creation. I like the feeling after you've run and how your body responds. Other people are not motivated by a love of running at all. My brother-in-law looks at me and says, I run because I'm an MFS firefighter and I have to run to keep my job, but I hate every step. What motivates you? Especially, we could say, what motivates you as a Christian? What motivates you to share the gospel of Jesus? What motivates you to love people with a different ethic than those around us? What motivates you to care in the same way that Jesus cared for one another? And I think this chapter is a very relevant reminder for our church and the church today. Because too often, people in the church have been motivated not by a love of people in Jesus, but by greed, lust, power, position or privilege. You may have read the recent report into family violence that came up from the Anglican Church this week. Some individuals in the church have used horrible, ungodly motives to justify their actions. It's a terrible picture of what marriage and family should be in God's eyes. They're motivated not by a love of God at all. Yet for the majority of evangelical Christians, we are motivated by a love of God, aren't we? We do want to genuinely love other people. We just need encouragement to keep on going, to see that following Jesus really is worth it. And I hope today, in these 16 verses, you would see with me that yes, following Jesus really is worth it. So here's what motivated Paul and his team. It was confidence in being loved by God and a genuine love for all people to know God too. That comes out of chapter 2, verse 8. Confidence in his own love of God, being loved by God, and a genuine love for all people to know God. Is that your motive? I pray it would be. So let's explore this. How do we live like this? How do we be a faultless and authentic Christian in a hostile world? And we'll start with this idea of being faultless. Look at verse 1 and 2 with me. For you know, brothers and sisters... Our visit to you was not without results. We had previously suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know. But with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in the face of strong opposition. 
When Paul says, not without results, he's literally saying, my visit wasn't empty. There was fruit. In fact, you are the fruit of my gospel ministry to you through believing in Jesus. And for Paul, what he's saying is the first idea here is that fruitfulness is his idea of successfulness. Fruitfulness is his definition of successfulness. And that's important. Because to say let's be fruitful emphasizes the place of hard work, asking hard questions when things don't work, but resting safely in the God, in our God at the same time, because he makes the fruit grow. And that's very true and clear, even in the face of strong opposition. You see, before Paul rocked up in Thessalonica, about 150 kilometers away was the next town called Philippi. And in Philippi, he had a very successful ministry. Planted a church, people got saved. But what happened was one day, he was walking off to the gathering of believers and this particular local business, which was built on child exploitation, um, the girl involved in this business was hassling Paul. And he said, in the name of Jesus, just stop. And this girl got saved by the power of God and this whole business was flipped upside down and the owners, who were making a lot of money off of her, weren't very happy. They took Paul to jail, said this, Paul is preaching Jesus, disrupting everyone. And so Paul was flogged, beaten, put in jail. Eventually he was released on the quiet because he was just too hot, it was too controversial. And they said, shh, go away. And Paul left. He explains it. He said, we were treated outrageously, he says in Philippi. And when they got to Thessalonica, they just kept on talking about Jesus with the help of our God, he says. The help of our God is is literally just in our God. And it's an important way of saying it. Because Paul is happily and safely located in God this whole time. Do you know that's the only place you can survive the Christian life, to be in God? Or even ministries, to be in God? It means the encouragement comes from this verse when he says to them in 2 verse 1, you know this already. You know all of this. So he's giving them a, a model to imitate as they continue on in the Christian life. He's revealing the true motive here of every single Christian, every gospel worker, every pastor, every mum who wants to be Jesus in her mother's group, every time you go for a coffee with the people in your office or workplace. Which means, as all good leadership books will tell you at some point, character is king or key. Especially for the Christian, because Character is bound up with the results of our ministry. And what we have from three to six is one of the richest descriptions of Christian ministry in the entire New Testament. And as you read this, you look at Paul's motives and you just can't fault him. Look at how he conducts himself. For the appeal in verse three we make does not spring from error or impure motives. We're not trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as those approved by God. To be entrusted with the gospel. We're not trying to please people, but God who tests hearts. You know, we never use flattery, nor do we put a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We were not looking for praise from people, nor from you or anyone else. Even though as apostles of Christ, we could have asserted our authority. What's his motive for for ministry? Simple. Pleasing God. 
He wasn't living for the approval of people. He lived to serve them with the gospel. He didn't try to please them in what he said, but rightly pleasing God who tests his heart. He wasn't motivated by greed or gain. He wasn't in ministry for the finances or to get rewards for great preaching. Today, he wasn't in ministry if he was around to get all the book sales and have followers on his blog. His title as an apostle afforded him some accolades, and I'm sure if Paul walked into here, we would all want to eagerly listen to what he said. But he never leaned on any of that. He was happy to sit at the back. He wasn't cajoling people into making them feel safe to take advantage of them, to get what he wants. And to drift into those motives subtly, intentionally, gives the gospel a rotten taste into people's mouths, does it not? And perhaps you have seen examples of that in your own life. But it's a huge danger today, as it was in Paul's day, not just from leadership in the church, but at every level. Consider it's the high school student who pretends to love Jesus, be okay with church, just to date the boy or girl they really like. It's a misguided way of being involved in church in which pride is disguised as zeal. You find your purpose in what you do, not in the grace of God. It's when you prefer comfort and ease rather than seeing the sacrifice and joy of doing things for others, making yourself less to show how beautiful Jesus really is. And Paul nails these motives on the head of ministry and then gives us the hope that you and me can be rightly motivated too because he says we speak as those approved by God, entrusted with the gospel. The word approved or those approved is just wonderful. It's, it's what they call a perfect passive. And that's very important to understand because it means that Paul has already been approved before he started preaching. It means he was approved not by what he did, but by something outside of himself that happened to him. And what was that? What happened to Paul in the past to approve him in the present? Now, it's the gospel of Jesus Christ, isn't it? In Jesus, in his belief in the gospel, he was approved by God. You see, he's been declared faultless through Jesus Christ. And now he can act faultless in his motives, you see. Paul was operating from his position in Christ. Already approved by God, he's free to be motivated by pleasing God. From a position of already acceptance. And that's true for every single one of you too. Why would you not operate in your life from that position you have in Christ? Moreover, because Paul lived in a culture very conscious of how you did things for others, when he says, I want to please God, it's a word used in honorary documents expressing a desire to accommodate the needs of someone more important. So it's quite, think of a dignitary, they come to town, or the hotel they stay in, and they say, this is the list you must accommodate before so-and-so can arrive into your place and stay in the city. And everyone gets the certain wine and the food and, and the temperature just right. You know, Taylor Swift has to have a certain type of Starbucks every time she travels, waiting for her at the hotel lobby. You know, Putin's jet was on the news last week because it was so fancy and elaborate and, and just elegant and extravagant, and this is how he traveled. He's a dignitary, and and this is, this is the idea Paul's getting at. I want to please my God... And what's most important 
is living to please him in all he does for the sake of the gospel to save more and more people. But can you see how he's already being accepted changes the motives? You can be motivated by a full heart, not an empty one. The gospel frees us from approval as some sort of psychological salvation because God's our ultimate father accepting us in Christ through his death and resurrection. And it's always tricky to understand motives. I'm sure if you've tried to use sarcasm in a text message, it's not gone the way you hoped. It's very hard to understand it. It doesn't work. And that can often be the case with knowing why people do what they do. Very hard to see through it. But Paul's aware of this. It's why he writes it. But he's also aware that God is the one to test his heart. God has this ongoing Myers-Briggs personality type survey that he's doing over Paul's life and everyone's life just constantly. Every moment, it's like God's assessing you and seeing what's going on. And that's not scary. I mean, it could be if you're afraid of God. But if you're already accepted, he's examining you just to remind you of who you really are. You see? So you can operate from this fully loved and accepted position in Christ, in in the grace of God, and that changes everything. So Paul's very clear, I'm faultless. I'm not using God for, for gain, for prosperity, for social approval. He was faultless, but he was also authentic. And this is verse 7 to 12. You know, being true to yourself is the highly evangelistic message of our culture today. Many positives to this, of course. You you don't have to follow in the footsteps of your parents, and I don't have to be a jeweler like my dad. You don't have to marry the person from your same little town or tribe. You can travel and work and live wherever you like when COVID gets better. But a casualty of this thinking is that when Christianity and belief in God bumps into that storyline because a Christian will say, oh, I do have a different view on sexuality and gender, I do think differently about refugees and singleness or generosity. When we bump into that narrative, the trouble is we're seen as hostile and unloving and even evil at the moment. But the the interesting thing is this, this, the root of this story, the, the root of our culture that says dignity, worth, love and joy and acceptance is so important, the root of all that actually comes from our Christian heritage. Deeply rooted, in fact, in Genesis 1.27. Because the belief that human life has value and dignity has never been a universal worldview of all times and all places. Nature doesn't teach that. It's the Christians who have, time and time again through history, shown human life has value and worth and dignity because you're made imagio Dei in the image of God. It's profoundly Christian. But in the last hundred years or so, culture's picked up on this, taken humanity's value and worth, and then filled it with a different bucket than God, and said, thanks for getting us this far, church. We'll take it from here. We'll improve on this God idea. We'll find utopia without, and we don't need you. A pastor in Melbourne called Mark Sayers very famously said, our culture wants the kingdom without the king. Now, why do I say that in the middle of 1 Thessalonians 2? Well, simply, these few verses offer a deeper, richer way of doing life that can be found anywhere else. The narrative, the good news narrative of be true to yourself, there's a better one actually on offer in Jesus Christ. One that's actually authentic 
And it's all to do with belief in God. Look at what Paul says. He says in 2 verse 7, we were like young children among you, in fact. For Paul, this means he doesn't put himself above them. We were all the same. He doesn't lord it over them. The church in Thessalonica wasn't a program to be involved in or a project to complete, but a family to do life with. And then he leans on this family language more and more, and he says, we cared for you, we treated you like a mother, with the same compassion and care that a new mum has for her children. When you become a parent, you realise how much of life a mother spends with her kids and shares, and you can't avoid that. Instagram has reels of mums now realising what no one told them about how intimately involved a child is and attached to you. Things like you go to the toilet with a child. You try to get dressed with a child. You try to take a shower without the child but doesn't work. You you do life with this small human being attached to you 24-7. And strangely, we celebrate that. And we love that. In the moment, I'm sure, it's frustrating and can be hard, but, but we love that. I remember receiving a video of, from Natasha of Charlotte crawling on her tummy for five minutes about this far to get to a box of toys. And there was great celebration. And then as they grew, there's still great celebration. Their intellectual and physical achievements. They're watching them flourish to find their talents and skills in life. And as I'm sure you can relate with older children, they get older and, and it changes again. And the care never leaves, does it? And that's the picture Paul's painting here. Deep, long, intimate as a mother with her kids, I feel that for you. He says it in 2 verse 8. I loved you so much. We were delighted to share with you not only the gospel, but our lives as well. What did that look like? Well, 9 to 12 tell us. He reminds them of three ways he shared his life and the gospel. Firstly, he says, verse 9, you remembered how he worked. He was a tent maker. Paul had a trade. He worked hard. You remember that, don't you? And then in verse 10, you saw how I lived after hours, right? Holy, blameless, no double life, no secrets, integrity, even when no one's watching you. He never says, this part of my life's off limits, I remember talking with someone years ago and they tried to get in the AFP and they couldn't because there were some uh, discrepancies in their character record, blemishes, if you will, and they got so frustrated and said, I have integrity, yet I can't get in. And I thought, integrity is actually what you do when no one's looking, not just what you do on your record for everyone to see. Then in 11 and 12, he says, You know how we worked, you know how we worked after hours, lived after hours, and you now know how we acted in your community. On the weekends, down the shops, online, it was like a father who encourages, comforts, urges you on. It's like the father who gets home from work and gives special attention to every child as they walk in the door, gently, attentively, no one neglected, no one left out. And those three main spheres of life, your work world, your family life, and your life in general, in all of them, for Paul and his team, it dripped with love for people and God. But it wasn't all covered in sunshine and a land of milk and honey. Because remarkably, being an authentic Christian thrives even in a hostile world. They may have seen Paul's character and authenticness, but what he wanted more than anything else was to point them to Jesus through receiving God's word as the word of God, which they did, 
In 2 verse 13, he says, you receive the word of God from us. It has the idea of taking close to yourself. When he says, it was at work within you, and put those together, we have a picture here of God's word making its home in our hearts and minds. Not as a good idea, but as the word of God, the very truth of God. When the toll delivery driver knocks on the door, another box for Natasha comes, and as I receive it, I take it inside, and then when Tasha gets home, she opens it and uses whatever's in there as it's intended. But that box had to come home to be opened and used, you see. God's word must come home to be opened and useful for us, you see. Many times, I'll say to the kids, wait until you get home. God's word is designed to work in the home of our heart, soul, and mind in the same way. And one such evidence that it's come home, like in chapter 1, was an imitation. But this time, imitation and suffering. Paul says the churches in Judea suffered from the Jews. The church in Thessalonica suffered from the Gentiles. And the church in Adelaide suffers from our culture too. Maybe you felt a little bit more like Christians in the office are more attacked recently. Latest casualty, if you've been listening to the ABC, seems to be in political sphere. Christians can't seem to join any political party at all because their views will upset the nice, happy place that it is. It seems like belief in God isn't actually good anymore. It's a problem. Can you relate to that? Thessalonians could. Paul could. Christians in every century could and can. It's just as 2.16 says, in persecution, there's an effort to stop us from speaking to the Gentiles an intentional effort to stop Christians speaking about Jesus. It's not new. But that's why being faultless and authentic in a hostile world matters. If they can't hear the message, if that's being silenced, let us live the implications of the gospel for all to see and continue to speak boldly who Jesus is. Because when the word of God's taken in, it enables an imitation in suffering convinced that these truths are not just moral, nice ideas, but it is actually the word of God. They're not made up. It has a God-centered, originating beginning. Which means, this chapter should cause a deep reflection in us. Have you done a faithfulness checkup recently? Lifting the bonnet on your life, seeing how things are going, seeing if you're living a holy, righteous, and blameless life, as Paul says. I mean, it's simple things. How's your prayer life? Don't answer. How's your Bible reading? How's what you watch? Are you resting in God's grace and approval in Jesus? How's your heart and mind as you go to work? You see, it's because we're secure in Jesus that we can examine our motives, just like chapter 2 of Thessalonians. We shouldn't feel despair, but realize how we are as the family of God is all by the grace of God. Freed in Jesus to be as a mother, as a father, as a child to one another. Delighting to share our lives in the gospel any way we can. So the question is, what motivates you? Why do you do what you do? Can you say with Paul and his team here, I love you to bits. I love God to bits. And I just want to share my life and my Jesus with you. Because I know I want to do that. And I do pray and hope that you would join me, that we will be a gospel family that does that in our church and in our own lives as well.
So this week, Monday morning, how will you share your life and your Jesus with those around you? What would that look like? Maybe you should read 1 Thessalonians 2 on the bus tomorrow morning or audio book on the way to work. Let's pray. Our great God, you call us and approve of us in Christ, forgiving us and making us new. May we operate from that position in Christ, safe, secure in you. Lord God, may that motivate us to serve you, to love others, to speak Jesus to one another. Lord God, may we be gentle like a mother, encouraging like a father, and and not seeing ourselves above anyone else because only by the grace of God that we are anything. As we go into Monday morning and the week ahead of us, Lord, may we be motivated rightly to live authentic, faultless lives, even in a world that doesn't like you or know you, all for the sake of your glory so that one more may be saved, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.